You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 50, 2011's Moneyball, and a slew of baseball cinema staples. Featuring Bull Durham, Eight Men Out, Major League, The Natural, Everybody Wants Some, Field of Dreams, and basically the rest of your dad's favorite TNT matinee programming. Martin. Yes. How can you not be romantic about baseball? another edition of Secret Handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, spine number 50. We did it! I, di- I didn't even realize it was 50 till you said it. That's crazy. Yeah, it's pretty wild. I was thinking about it the other day to where I was like, we've been doing this for a little bit now and racking these numbers up, and it wasn't until I actually wrote the intro and had to go back to the site and be like, what number is this again? And it's like, oh shit, spine 50. And that's not counting all the stupid bonus episodes and, you know, diving into the Batman and interviews and whatever. This is just the straight up spine numbers. So, you know what, brother? It feels pretty good. It does. Congratulations. Oh, congrats to you, sir. Hey, and to you. Uh, but we're doing Moneyball, the, how do we describe this? Sports melodrama uh, that also deals a lot in mathematics. And then we also picked... Uh, four movies a piece so that we each kind of had a top five um, to do more or less like an opening day spring baseball fever episode. And this was totally your idea. Why do you want to do it? Baseball is the one sport I can watch. Like, I'm, you know I me, mean? I'm not much of a sports person. Um, well, that's one of the things I did want to bring up is that our last two episodes now are straight up sports movies and we're not sports dudes. It's well, I think that it's a lot of sport movies are my favorites because a lot of sports are just so cinematic and they're so like mythic and you know me with like mythic Americana like that's my shit and so like baseball is like the ultimate for that for me of like fathers and sons and like Norman Rockwell Americana and like, and the drama's just kind of baked into the competition well it's I mean I, I was as I was watching these films again I think I've seen them all before many some of them way too many times I think Baseball is probably the most cinematic sport, um, and I'm by that I mean it's the easiest I think to like find the drama in um, as a kind of like 
again, not watcher of sports. Sometimes with football, like I need more information to understand what's going on. Sure. Basketball, I think, is harder to film. It moves very fast. With baseball, you have these very like um, defined moments of at the bat or the pitcher. You know, the perfect game. It's these moments of showdowns and like like boxing a lot of times one guy versus one guy you know or league of their own women you know a sister versus a sister and you can see these moments of where they find their moment to be the hero in the narrative or to you know fail horribly um i just think it's like it's such an american sport and, and for me american kind of that american kind of like hero story just mixes so well with baseball well, that was one of the things I did want to hit on, too, is that not only are we not sports guys, we're, like, weirdly analytical about sports at the same time, like, when we talk about it in terms of, like, drama. And the things that really stuck out to me watching all of these movies uh, in quick succession is that we're, maybe to, to your point about baseball being so cinematic, it's one of the few sports where you deal with both the team dynamic and the bonding and how you come together to win a game, but also how the individual can stand out in baseball, probably even more so than every, every other sport except for like golf maybe. Well, and it, it's, it's, I completely agree. Cause you could, there's so many lenses you can take to like look at a baseball team. And there's these films like are very different. A lot of them in terms of like, what they show and what they focus on. Um, but I totally agree that you have those moments again, specifically the pitcher and you know, the batter it's these, these moments of like one guy against one guy or one guy against himself. Like the natural is that very, you know, very mythic kind of Greek kind of Greek myth feel. Um, well, let's start with the natural yeah, because a confession I gave to you while we were watching these that I texted to you is that I'd never actually seen this movie before. So this was a total first time uh, revelation for me. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's great. Um, my, this is one of my dad's favorites. He also gets really mad about it because in the, um, the Malmuth book, um, he loses like at the end, it's not, it's more of like a hubris thing where it's like, he fails. Like a lot of Greek heroes fail. It has that kind of like the fall of the hero. Um, I like him winning. Um, I also just love the like sepia toned look of this entire fucking film. One of my favorite moments in, it like, looks like a Roger Deakins production oh, half the time. Oh, it's and, not. Yeah. But, it looks like a Cohen, you know, Cohen's right. like that, that super like almost like Miller's crossing, specifically kind of look very tweedy and, and brown and blown out. But like at the same time, like when they're outside, there are whole like sequences where it makes America look like the most Malikian place of all time. Like it's just dudes and cornfields and by the baseball tracks, like the whole showdown between him and Joe Don Baker is so fucking awesome because you're, you're watching it and you're like, this is just how it would have went like back then too. It's just a crowd on the side of the road and he strikes him out in three pitches. And it's just a showdown between two. Well, really one Titan and a guy like coming up. But I didn't know that about the inning. I've never read the book or yeah. anything, but like him losing doesn't actually make sense to me. Oh, I don't at least I, how the film is structured. Exactly. I think there are different beats in the, the, the whole film. I believe I have to ask my dad more, but like, I think the beats of the book lead to a sense of like, oh, you've gotten too big for your britches. Like he needs to be taught a lesson by the gods. The movie definitely is structured as this like 
rise, right? And the, and the things that are against him are like, as you said over text, you know, it's, it's women. You know, it's like who, yeah. he, who, who he chooses as his like... It's this is a weirdly almost misogynistic film in a way. Oh when yeah, you watch totally. It because it's literally like the main antagonist is crazy pussy the whole time. It's yeah. like if you stick your dick in crazy, that'll ruin your whole fucking life. And it's not until he gets to Glenn Close by the end that it's like, oh, she was just staring you in the face the whole time. But it also seems like literally the narrative of his life is dependent upon which women he sleeps with. Like, because Kim Basinger leads to a, um, the seduction yeah. of him by like the, the nefarious she's, she's that forces. Fatale, exactly. Kinda, yeah. yeah. Like it turns almost into a straight up noir at certain points, especially with Darren McGavin and his weird fucking glass eye and shit. Like he's such a great villain in this. Oh, he's awesome. Um, it feels like a really good companion piece to the right stuff, which really found the kind of mythic quality in that narrative. I think specifically the scene with, the classic of the lightning striking the the tree and then making wonder, you know, wonder boy out of that, um, out of that tree. So like out of like a myth, you know, or that reminds me of, um, Jaeger kind of going to look at the X one, you know, this is the thing that's going to take me into greatness, you know? Well, and there's so many of these movies that place, they kind of play in direct contrast to one another in terms of our picks, because like, this is sort of the anti-Moneyball because this is very much about how one individual can become a god inside of like a sport, even at an older age, and like use this mythical baseball bat that he's crafted himself out of a tree that was struck by fucking lightning. The night his father died. Yeah, the night his <laughs> father died, pursue baseball and basically become like the champion who knocks one out of the park to defy the entire like gambling system that's been set up around, you know, the, the national league baseball at the time. And it's just like, what, when you, when you watch it so close to Moneyball, it's just sort of like, this is it though. This is the way baseball can be portrayed on screen is that you have the mythic American pastime that's romanticized to Billy Bean's point when he makes that, you know, quote about how can you not be romantic about baseball, but then you get to where the romanticism in Moneyball is the thing that's actually killing the sport and has made it such a class oriented kind of competition, let's say to where you have rich teams, you have poor teams and you have what 500 feet of shit. And then you have the Oakland athletics. Well, yeah, it's rewatching Moneyball last night. Um, it's cool though how it kind of doesn't come down completely on one side of the issue, right? Because like, yes, they win because of like the numbers thing, but so much throughout the film is Billy having to like actually connect with players. Like, part of his arc is like, no, part of it is the human touch. Like, it's not just like like getting rid of Jason Giambi, you know is because he's a bad element, which is a human element, not mathematical. And he there's these moments of like, okay, there's still an element of you need confidence, you need that, that extra energy, you need the romanticism to also power baseball. It's not just numbers. Well, and like lifting David Justice up to become yes. this late in life or late in career, I should say, leader of these much younger players and these much kind of lesser players, at least compared to his legacy at that point. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, obviously in Moneyball, what it shows early in the film is how 
the other side though has gone completely haywire to your point of like the 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 romanticism of these scouts who are talking complete bullshit right where it's like well his girlfriend's ugly what does that matter well he means he lacks confidence i mean it's a great well-written scene but it's like you see billy like what the fuck are you guys talking about sound like we're looking for fabio guys yeah yeah, and it's you know with the idea too to your point earlier about the individual versus the, the the team like this, this or the one, system. Or the system. Case. This also, you have the sense, though, of like, I want to get three guys to replace Giambi. You know, not one. This idea that the star system doesn't work. Or we can't play in this star system against the Yankees. Because they'll they'll spend us to death. Well, because the, the thing that we need to talk about when discussing Moneyball 2 is that this wasn't the movie that was originally envisioned. Because there was you know, the Soderbergh version of this that was going to happen for like, what, $60 million under Sony. He had gotten five days away from production and then did a rewrite of Steve Zalian's script that more or less made it an art movie about the mathematics of baseball. And and he was going to, you know, cut in real interview footage with like actual players talking Mm, about the economic systems of baseball. And Sony was like, Whoa, this is not what we're like fucking investing in. Like we want a baseball movie. We want a, a rise and fall underdog movie about this great Oakland A's team because it was even supposed to be Soderbergh's uh, reunion with Brad Pitt after the oceans movie. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, And then Soderbergh, and production Soderbergh gets fired and then production shuts down five days before, you know, the movie's set to start shooting. It's kind of like what happened with the fountain with Brad Pitt. Yeah. Pretty same, close. Same thing. About well, people were bring, I remember when this all happened, people were bringing that up in stark comparison of being like, damn, is he just cursed? Does he just go to these movies? And like, and it also speaks to like Brad Pitt's choice in collaborators and material too, is that he really likes these rich, weird uh, creatives and the texts that they bring with them. But at the same time, the studios are like, I don't know, man. Well, and I mean, I'm, I would obviously love to see that version as well. I, I love what turned out. I, you know, well, he sort of made it because he sort oh, of yeah. made it during COVID with high flying bird. Absolutely. High flying bird is very much, at least by description the movie that he talked about making with Moneyball, because High Flying Bird, I guess for those who have never seen it, it's on Netflix now. It's really good. Kind of one of those undervalued Soderbergh gems that he literally just flew in under the radar because he shot it on an iPhone. It stars Andre Holland, and it's all about an NBA basketball agent who's navigating a lockout and trying to sign players and make sure that they all more or less like unionize and, and, Uh, get the payment that they're worth. Um, But in between the actual dramatic scenes are these black and white interviews with like young real life players talking about how hard it is to adjust to the financial aspects of the game, especially guys coming straight from high school and everything. Well, and that's, you know, economics again is a huge part of a lot of these, you know, I mean, moving a little bit to, you know, eight men out, you have, you were texting me and I totally agree that, you know, it's part of like, um, sales kind of union trilogy of city on, you know, um, city of hope and, um, Matawan and then, and then also eight men out of coming together to fight a corrupt system. But with eight men out, you kind of have the dark, 
side of that, a way how they are painted, this this team is painted as these villains for how dare you um, go against the, again, the romanticism of baseball. These kids are looking at you, but you're all getting paid shit. And, and you have a, these owners, specifically with uh, David Strathairn's character, who's like, you literally didn't play me two games, so I wouldn't have my winning streak, so you wouldn't have to pay me a $10,000 bonus. And you see the bullshit behind the scenes. You're kind of like, well, I get why you're doing what you're doing, but it shows kind of both sides of, of also the hurt it it takes upon um, Cusack's character specifically, you know, and and also Joe um, Joe Jackson, who shows up as a character also in Field of Dreams. These guys right. who all they wanted to do was play baseball, you know. Yeah, and at the same time, it Eight Men Out goes out of its way to illustrate how these dudes are working stiffs to their core and can barely pay their own bills. Yeah. You know, if it weren't for the club and the team paying for their lodging and travel and everything, like they would probably live in squalor more or less. Well, and I, I totally agree. And it was so, I think, um, smart of sales and sales. is amazing is like setting the place and time beyond it just being the twenties or the, the late teens. It's like, no, these are not the stars you see today. Like you said, they live differently than than sports stars do today. These guys were living like like plumbers, you know, or or less. They're just and they're just trying to scrape by, and so you kind of understand where they're coming from. And then you also have characters like Michael Rooker, who has that kind of like look in his eye of like I'm always just trying to make an extra buck, and he has no loyalty. He has no honor. Yeah, he's the you true know? hustler of yeah. that whole group. While uh, you know John Cusack becomes like that moral center, the guy who's questioning it the entire time. And the others, like you totally understand like David Strathern as the older pitcher, like getting caught up because he knows his career is yeah. kind of early or over. He doesn't know what he's going to do with the rest of his life. And like, of course he would take this payout money because it, you know, he's, he's literally in a dead end job at this point. Yeah. And yeah. then you have DB Sweeney playing shoeless Joe Jackson who can't even read. He can't read, he can't write, but he can play baseball, you know, and the movie again, explicitly goes out of its way to illustrate how Joe Jackson, like even towards the end when all the newspaper stuff and coming out, I love the little choice sales makes to have his, his wife read the paper to him because that's the only way that he knows he can't actually look and know what the verdict is against him and his, his teammates, you know, and it's, it is. It, it's a lot of sales's preoccupation with not only the economics of things, but also class. Oh, because, totally. you know, he, he does these amazing movies that put you in a very specific time and place and show you how the working class, even if they were baseball players, struggle to get by and are constantly being you know, oppressed or suppressed by like the classes above, above them. In this case, like the owners, the commissioner gangsters, like rigging the games and everything. Like they're always fighting against these forces. I mean, it's really no different than watching, you know, the racist power structures and something like Lone Star yeah. to where that's the most Texan movie ever made. No movie has ever represented Texas better on screen than Lone Star. And it's a, because it's about how white people and Mexicans and poor people and police and 
business owners and racist sheriffs. It's how that whole melting pot exists and lives with like years of animosity towards one another because they're on different class levels. Yeah. And in, as you said, like eight men out totally mixes in with not just like the themes, but also just like that very um, mosaic kind of storytelling that, that sales is so good at of, of there's a main character in, um, in, in Lone Star more with Chris Cooper's character and kind of with his relationship with his father and his past. But this is really an ensemble film. You know, it's all, it's basically like the situation of, okay, we all know about them throwing the world series. Let's go in and, his ability to storytell from the beginning of like Christopher Lloyd's character, like watching from the stands and they're already saying like, who do you think we can get to, you yeah. know? And then Kevin Tyge's character, who's you know, always a heel in all of, he's so good. He and, and JT Walsh, like oh. had to share DNA at some point. <laughs> he's such a piece of shit. Actually, he's a bigger piece of shit in, in made one. Oh yeah. One. He's real evil in that shit. Or Roadhouse. <laughs> <laughs> He's great in that. That's, that's him at his nicest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Compared to, to, to Madawan, he's an angel in Roadhouse. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're totally right. Um, it's the same in uh, City of Hope, too. Yep. To where it's literally... I mean, City of Hope is the wire before uh, ex- the wire. Exactly. You know? No, exactly. It's the class structures of Baltimore and how they interact and... and Construction crews and yeah, cops and collide against one another. What a movie that it's fucking so is. It's so good, dude. But that's... That one's probably closer in structure to Eight Men Out, or at least the ensemble kind of cast and storytelling than Lone Star is, too, because you don't have a protagonist in City of Hope. I mean, you kind of do with Joe Morton and everything, but it's like... And and Madawan's closer to Lone Star as well, because you have Chris Cooper, again, kind of as your central protagonist. But they're all about creating these microcosms that you kind of just exist inside. And he tells these stories that happen and it's, he's really a a master filmmaker, but you know, to bring it back to Moneyball, one of the chief differences between something like a sales script, which is huge, this huge sprawling ensemble and like something like Moneyball, which to me after Soderbergh, and Zalian, because Zalian's still credited as a screenwriter. Yeah. But then they brought Sorkin in to come and rewrite yeah. the whole thing. And Aaron Sorkin turns it into a straight up Aaron Sorkin movie. Oh, it's like social network. It's well, yeah, yeah it's all about yeah. disruptors. Yeah. It's social network, Steve Jobs. Like that's the stuff that he is like fascinated yeah. by. It's these innovators who go up against a system with a game changing idea in Moneyball, quite literally. And then how the system like reacts to it. Because, like, Social Network is that, too. Now, Social Network gets a little more biting because, like, right. Fincher is adding his own acidic vibe to Sorkin's kind of already loaded commentary about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and how social media will basically take over our lives in the near future. But, like, where Bennett Miller comes into Moneyball and adds his very technically proficient but kind of removed feel to it like he's very much like an observer where you know fincher is actively like up in it locking you (laughs) into like this point of view that he wants you to get by the end no i mean yeah even his just even his shot selection and bennett miller is always like taking these like distant i think of one of my favorite scenes early on is just um meeting philip seymour hoffman when he confronts um billy bean in the in the hallway like hey like 
I have a one year contract. What is that shit? And it's like super subdued acting. I mean, like even for for Hoffman, like really low key, like and these like these wide kind of like over the shoulder shots. You know, like we're kind of watching from a distance. Um, well, it's all about hallways and locker rooms yep. and weight rooms and and the field, but not the field. While they're playing, there's a lot of empty fields, <laughs> yep. you know, or tape rooms or offices, you know, like this is very much a guy's talk. Again, a Sorkin movie. It's guys talking in rooms and operating at a very high level, both, you know, intellectually and uh, uh, let's say in their jobs, too. But then it turns into a baseball movie basically by the end, a, a very traditional, what you imagine the studio wanted that Soderbergh wasn't going to deliver. It turns into like the underdog story, the inspirational movie, right down to the final, very natural feeling home run by Hatterberg. That's, I love it because even, I would love to hear more about like the, the, the kind of behind the scenes stuff, like to see what was kept and what was changed. But like, I think the whole film it's constantly again dancing back and forth between like pragmatism and like romanticism, right? You have this like Billy Bean's character kind of seeing both sides. Like he at first is like, "Hey, I want to throw everything out. I want to do the math. I want to like you know ignore the human element more and just be like, hey, what are the numbers here?" And the Hatterberg scene is so important to me because it's like that's that romantic moment. You know, that is that the most romantic moment in the entire film. And what kind of puts it kind of nails that is then that that following scene where after they've lost the um, in the World Series and or on the way to the World Series, you know, the great scene of Jonah Hill showing him this this tape of this this larger kid. Going, I love it. Going for second. And it, fucking I cry every time I see it. And he's like, you know, the kid hit a home run. I didn't even know it. You know, it's a, it's a metaphor. Yeah, I, I know it's a metaphor. Also a quintessential Sorkin scene. Oh, it's great. I'm going to spell this out with a long, drawn out. He does it in everything from the American president on. Like, it's literally, I'm going to write this extended story that this one character tells that's just a metaphor for basically everything you're dealing with narratively and emotionally. Well, he, I mean, he finds the, you know, I've always felt Billy Bean's character, at least the way he's played by Pitt, is he's basically George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. It's a very similar kind of arc where you have this guy who's doing good, who can't see his own worth. The constant thing is like this guy is like, he's doing the right thing. He's on the right path, but he thinks he's a piece of shit. He thinks he's a failure. You know, from the beginning, the, the writing's so fucking good where it's like, my goal is here. You know, for those who can't see me, my his hand is like, my goal is here. Anything less, I can't settle for. You know, even to the end is like, we broke the record. We won 20 games. Pete's like, hey, you you know, we should be happy. He's like, they're going to forget us. And he's right. But at the same time, he's wrong. You yeah, because he, he has, says, he has like, changed it. Well, and that's the thing is that the romanticism of baseball has jaded him in a weird way because oh, yeah. he keeps referencing back, I know how these people think. I know how they talk. I know how they analyze the game. Like, if we don't win the World Series, 20 games doesn't mean shit. He goes, and that's what I – it's one of the great lines in the movie that's very simple is he goes, and that's what I want. I want it to mean something. It's – well, and then there's so, like you said, there's so many Sorkin scenes too. Like the one that really sticks out is they've been losing in that early on streak. And like, 
like he hears them partying in the, the locker room and Giambi's dancing and it's like, get down off of there. He's like, you having fun? You having fun? And he's like, he, he throws that trash can, right? You hear this like awesome sound effect. It's clank, like this plate kind of clanging on the ground. He's like, that's what losing sounds like. It's just fucking like, and it's pit. Pitt's like rarely been better. I put this up there with um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for just pure movie star. Just yeah, he's amazing in this. Because in anybody else's hands, Billy Bean is kind of bland, to be honest. It's all injected by, by Pitt. Yeah, he yeah. lifts it all up because of that pure movie star charisma. And frankly, like Pitt in a polo and like some khakis and like those Oakley sunglasses, like he's the most authentically costumed like coach outside of like coach Taylor from it's, Friday night. It's Lights. not sexy. <laughs> it's no, not it's a good just, look. No, but he's, but he's still fucking Brad Pitt, you know? Well, there's that mo there's those moments where you see Pitt going just all in, like after one scene where he talks to Philip Seymour Hoffman, he walks away and does the da, 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 like walk or um, a lot of eating, a lot of Brad Pitt eating. Dude, I kept writing <laughs> notes. Cause I know I was like, just mauling sandwiches. I watched, I was on YouTube. It was a super cut of all the eating and Brad. And I, he really did it in the Oceans movies. Like, oh, yeah, especially Soderberg, 12. Soderbergh let him go nuts with well, it. Well, it was an inside joke. Yeah. Like the whole time between them is it was, because I think Pitt even went to Soderbergh in Oceans 12 and was like, I want to eat in every scene. <laughs> and he's like, sure, why not? He's like mouth fucking some fries in Moneyball in one scene. Oh, yeah, he's, he's like destroying <laughs> it. Also, great Sorkin scenes in the office, too. Uh, the, the, Trade deadline scene where they're oh, trying to oh. shuffle players around and shit. That's like quintessential Sorkin stuff, too. And you know he probably wrote that in one sitting. He oh, was yeah. like so high on cocaine. It was like he was zoned fucking in. I think at this point he's sober. I think okay. I think Sorkin was sober by 2011 because he got busted uh, that one time. Uh, yeah. During West Wing, it's one of the reasons why he you know, left the show or more or less got fired after season four of West wing is that he got arrested going through an airport with like crack <laughs> mushrooms, weed, like just, to, I remember even reading it. Cause in, you know, whatever that is like 1998 or 99, um, I'm like 16 or 17 years old. And I, I remember even like reading it and being like, that's a lot of drugs. <laughs> like at any point, and let alone is. a fucking airport. <laughs> Well, I had a dream the other night that I was hanging out with Sorkin. It might have been because we were getting ready for this. And he was very nice in my dream. Wow. I was like, hey, you're really great. Stark contrast to how what he's supposedly like in real life. I know. I, I don't want to meet him. It's like how I don't want to meet Michael Mann. Yeah. I, I you just, know he's I, a horrible person. I just like they don't they say don't meet your heroes. And Michael Mann is my number one favorite filmmaker. I know he is a big one for you, too. It's like I just don't want it to happen. Yeah. I just think it, I, w it wouldn't go well. Did I ever tell you the Stephen Ravel story? You know, yeah. who wrote. Ali. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got a screenwriting award, like the first year out of, uh, college when I moved back home, I didn't know what the hell I was doing living with my parents outside of Philadelphia. I basically entered, um, the, this screenwriting contest at the, uh, Philadelphia film festival and got best screenwriter under 25. And it was the Stephen Ravel award oh, that's cool. because he was from Philadelphia. He'd written a bunch of stuff. Cause he also did that, uh, Gary Oldman Beethoven movie, Immortal oh. Beloved. Oh, I love that with Bernard Rose. Yeah. Yeah. So like he, he wrote that he wrote Ali. I'm forgetting another big one that he wrote. Cause he, he didn't. Oh, Nixon for Oliver oh, okay. Stone. Cool. Um, 
But I remember we had this big cocktail reception like afterwards at this swanky bar in, in Philadelphia. And I go up to talk to him. And we're talking. I'm like, man, I got to ask you, just as like a huge fan, because I'm like, you know, 23 or four, fresh out of film school and everything. And yeah. I'm like, I got this guy who worked with both fucking, uh, you know, Stone Oliver and- Stone and Michael Mann. And I'm like, how's, how's Oliver Stone? He's like, oh, man. Ollie's great. Like you just, you always have a good time working with him, blah, 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 which is hilarious because in my mind, I've always heard that Oliver Stone is like a straight up dictator on set. Yeah. And then I was maybe like, not to his screenwriters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then I was like, Oh, and Michael Mann, like I love Ali and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he point blank without blinking goes, Michael Mann is one of the worst people I've ever met in my life. And I was, and I just felt like part of my heart die where it was like, Oh, that yep. sucks, man. He's like, yeah. He's like, you know, his daughter, his daughter was trying to get a movie made. He told me the story about Michael Mann's daughter trying to get a movie made and how like she called him for like to help with producing and funding. He basically was like, do it on your own. <laughs> like, yeah, like real fucked up shit. And I was like, damn, Steven Revelle just coming out swinging and being like, Nope, kid, I'm sorry. If you're going to thrive in this business, you're gonna have to deal with assholes. Oh, great. <laughs> But the other thing I want to point out, too, in the collection of movies that we watched for this is that, you know, a lot of these movies are also about the camaraderie of sports. In particular, uh, two of the movies that I picked, Bull Durham and Everybody Wants Some. Yeah. Um, Everybody Wants Some being one of the purest hangout movies like ever made. Oh, man. The spiritual sequel to Dazed and Confused that I now, I think, prefer to Dazed and Confused. It's hard for me. Um, Dazed is like the it's like top five favorite movie. One of the reasons I moved to Austin. Um, but rewatching, I didn't seen Everybody Wants Some since it came out, and um, it it's better in a lot of ways. And I think like one of the reasons is like Linklater is a better filmmaker, significantly better at yeah. like directing, and but like his blocking, his staging, just like the way that the camera moves and these like larger like party scenes and kind of like. The way he's able the to bar shift scenes. the the dialogue is much less cloying than it can be in Dazed, where Dazed is that very like it's coming of age, you know. And the, uh, I think it's about on the same level. Well, because everything with the, Blake Jenner, like with Blake Jenner and Zoe Deutsch, that shit's right? kind of hard for me to see. Watch. I like that stuff because it becomes, and I think that's why I love Everybody Wants Some so much is that it's sort of the ultimate like link ladder sampler is because you get the sports movie based on his whole, his own, you know, life going to college and playing ball. And then you get the days and confused kind of coming of age stuff. And then you get scenes that's like of those two, like starting to like each other and date where they're just, it's walk and talks kind of like the, the sunset the before, sunrise yeah. movies. And like, and then you have, um, our, our top gun boy, Glenn Powell going full like movie star in this. Like this is the moment kind of like he's kind of doing McConaughey. Well, that's what I was going to say is that he's, he's the Wooderson of the movie is that he's like, this is my moment to really shine with a great filmmaker who knows how to work with young, particularly actors um, and let them kind of riff and really find their own rhythm. And man, he does because he's the best part of this fucking movie. He and, and Taylor Hockner for me, I think that like the scene Superman, he's really great. Like the scene where he cusses out uh, the asshole pitcher 
Um, I love that character. But where he's just like, it's about being on a team, man. You see, like, really what he's about that beneath all the, like, kind of bluster that he's like, no, man, I give a, sh- I give a shit, you know? And I love the kind yeah, of, I'm like... I'm a leader. I'm a, yeah, I'm a leader. And, like, the underneath, I love the kind of... Something I, I'm sure you understand more than I do, but, like, they have, they have that whole scene where it's like, why are we always competing all the time? You know, we're, we're, we're flicking knuckles or we're playing ping pong. Because it's like, we got to keep our comp... We got to... We hate losing. We have to keep that, like, winner's mentality. And I was like, I just never grew up in that. But then he really kind of gets that across to an audience, I think, who doesn't understand. Oh, 100%. And it's also the way that Linklater, kind of like with, you know, Taylor Hawkland's or Tyler Hawkland's character. I forget. I fucked up his um, name. Yeah. Like, at first, when you meet him, he seems like the big man on campus, kind of a dick, the all American who knows he's going to go play professional ball, has the amazing scene where he's literally cutting baseballs in half with an ax as they're being pitched to him. And like somebody off screen is like, you know how fucking strong you have to be to do that. <laughs> and like, but it's the way that link ladder and all of his movies very subtly injects like a a compassion and humanity. Like he clearly loves these guys, even though they're gigantic dumbasses half the time and just bros being bros saying dumb shit, talking about pussy all the time and water beds and like getting high, going to whatever party they can go to. And like, cause you even have a dude like Wyatt Russell, you know, who shows up and steals like the five scenes that he's, he's in. He's so good in and this. And he feels That's a new directly, school record. <laughs> yeah, he feels directly beamed in from Days and Confused. Well, and his his story, it, it's really kind of sad, like when you find out like that he's this like twenty-five-year-old guy who's just like lying his way from like team to team just to play baseball and hang out with the guys. And he's like yeah, because he that, doesn't know how to do anything else. The scene where they're like, he gets called off the field. You kind of see him like, well, the jig is up. And he just like, here for a good time, not a long time, fellas. And it's, it's just gone. Yeah. Like, that's a that's a really. It's a rough scene. It's a really rough scene. Um, or I mean, And also, like, Linklater is so good at, like, you're kind of saying, like, revealing more about a character as you go on. Like, when you first meet your all these guys, you're totally in the shoes of Blake Jenner, right? So it's like. It's Blake Jenner, right? That's his name? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that kind of like similar to the way um, with uh, with Mitch in A Days of Confuse, it's like you're seeing these larger-than-life figures around you when you're the freshman, they're the seniors, and you're like, I don't even know. Like they're they're kind of gods to you, and they're, they're almost like one note in who they are, and the film starts to paint in the details kind of a who they who they really are. And I think with the, the Taylor character – um, I think you know with with White Russell seeing more of his side, but you see it in Dave's too with with Cole Hauser's character that he's this like kind of one note thing until that moment where he kind of reveals to you know to Randall Pink Floyd is like we got it like we need you man like I know we're joking around and having a good time but like you can't let us down you see like the, these guys actually give a shit you know beyond their partying beyond like their tomfoolery it's true. But at the same time, the tomfoolery is a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. I don't think it overshadows it. No, not at all. And that's the thing that he's so good at in terms of tone is that you never lose the wavelength of we're here to have fun. We're here to, to have a good time, to party. That's what youth is about. You know, all of his movies are about this passage of time. 
you know, and everybody wants some, especially when paired with Jason Confused is about like a very specific period in one guy's life and how it's totally different than everything that came before and how it'll, cause that's the cool thing about it is that I forgot until I was rewatching it, that it all takes place in basically one weekend yeah. before classes start. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just these dudes on their own, you know, managing themselves and navigating life and trying to figure out how they're going to fit into the college, like infrastructure, but then being like, I can't wait to go to the, you know, to this bar tonight i can't wait to go to sound machine i can't wait to go to this weird punk party that we kind of like stumbled upon it's a really fucking cool dynamic that is just classic link ladder it's about finding your place in the world yeah and the whole line where like uh they're saying is like we were at a honky-tonk bar last night a disco or the night before we're punks tonight you know it's that like especially at that age where you can kind of, like you said, kind of play different parts. Well, they're trying on the skins to see which one fits best for them. Yeah. And like you said, it never forgets that it's all about fun for the characters, but also for us as an audience. Like I want to hang out with these guys. Yeah. Why don't you untuck your shirt? You look like a fucking Bible salesman. (laughs) The movie's so great. Another uh, one that I picked that I think is purely about the camaraderie of baseball right down to its central kind of arc is Bull Durham. Yeah. Like, I love the relationship between Kevin Costner and Tim Robbins in this movie because it's literally about... It's the David Justice dynamic from Moneyball of, like, here's the older guy that's literally brought in. He has one job. He's still good at baseball, but he's better at basically molding the next young, hot thing that's going to go up to the major leagues. Yeah. Yeah, I love I love their relationship. And, and also gets into kind of the themes you see in other films of even the Rocky films, like w- women weaken knees or maybe strengthen knees, you know, right. with this film. Um, I, I mean, Sarandon is just amazing in this. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. Also one of the great examples of a guy making one really great movie and never really achieving that in the same way before, as much as I like white men can't jump like Shelton kind of, chased this dragon for the rest of his career and never quite got to the heights of Bull Durham because Bull Durham's near perfect at times. Oh yeah. It's amazing. I didn't realize I was, um, so my job is like, we go to Raleigh quite a bit. There's a bar in Raleigh that they filmed a lot of the movie in. Yeah. And I kept seeing Bull Durham posters everywhere. I said, what the fuck? What's the big deal? And they're like, oh yeah, they shot it here. And I realized it was like one of the bar scenes. Oh, I wonder I like, if it's that bar at the beginning where he fights him out in the alley. Yep. Afterwards. Yeah. It's all the hard, hard wood and stuff. Uh-huh. Yep. That's yeah. the one. Yep. Totally. I was just, I was just sitting there completely unaware. <laughs> like, hmm, this is weird that you guys have <laughs> all of five. these posters. <laughs> yeah. But also, you know, Bull Durham, is this the introduction of Kevin Costner as being the ultimate like cinematic baseball actor. This is the year before field of dreams, right? Yeah. Cause you get bull Durham field of dreams. I mean, uh, you know, for love of the game yep. later, but like, he's, he's the guy, he's the one that we think of the Cowboys and baseball. He Cowboys just like and baseball are his thing. He's one of the ultimate like Americana actors. Yeah. He's great. Um, and I mean, field of dreams is probably my favorite baseball movie. Um, I rewatched that too. And, and talk about it. That's the, that's probably next to the natural, the most romantic of all of these. Yeah, probably 100%. Right. I mean, like, Because it's the counterpoint to Eight Men Out. It's literally about where Eight Men Out, it, you know, 
gives you the humanity of the Chicago Black Sox and what they went through and never lets you feel like they were anything but duped. Like, Field of Dreams is like, these guys were our heroes. And, you know, and we lost them to time, more or less. And I built this mythical stadium so that we could bring them out of the cornfields. They're ghosts, you know? That movie should not work. At all. It should not. And and watching it from a structure standpoint, like bringing in fucking, you know, uh, James Earl Jones's character, you're like, wait, where's this going? And now I've obviously seen it so many times that I don't question that, but it's like, and now we're going to go back in time and meet Burt Lancaster. It's like, what the fuck? But it all gels together. Yeah. It's just, it hits the exact right note and it found the exact right performer with Kevin Costner at yep. the center to do this. And it just, I know that you don't like Shawshank, but the movie it actually reminds me of a lot is Shawshank. It just has that very like classical dad movie feel that, you know, we, we get into and it romanticizes the ideas of like fathers and sons and male bonding and like how people cling to these interests like throughout the years. Like Field of Dreams is fucking great. I mean, they called it the male weepy. I mean, that was when they came out. They were advertising it as yeah. like, I, I remember when it came out. Like, I was like six, like five or six. And I remember like people talking about it. And they were like, oh, this is the movie that makes men cry, you know? Yeah. And it was all about, you know, having a conversation with your father you never got to have because he passed away or because you just are estranged and it's all baked in there um and that end scene is just absolutely just it's beautiful where he's like hey dad want to have a catch you know yeah. it's you can't beat it lands it, it sticks the landing so hard and it just it's and then to have that that shot of just all the cars coming like to the field it's just i don't know it's it dances on the line with cheese, but it doesn't dive over, you know, into it. Yeah, with it's another like, director, this would have been pure schmaltz. And it still sort of is to oh, a certain yeah. degree, but it's schmaltz that really works. Well, there's that line. There's one line where Costner just, it doesn't work, where um, it's after, um, it's after like Shoeless Joe's been there for a minute when he first comes, and he's like, hey, there's, uh, you know, more guys that might want to come. He's like, yeah, he's like, can they come? Yes, they're all welcome here. It's like, ugh, it's just... The- <laughs> yeah, Costner, one of the weird... Like, he's such an amazing movie star. Um, but, like, so much of the stuff that he became famous for, like, he's kind of bad in. Like, I rewatched Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves That's recently. a rough ride, dude. That movie sucks. Now, <laughs> like, I lo- as a kid, I, I was obsessed with that movie. Oh, I watched it all the time as a kid, dude. I remembered liking it. I remember seeing it in theaters with my parents when I was a kid and being into it. But, like, watching it now as an adult, I forgot how fucking long it is, number yeah. one. And number two, like... It feels like everybody is just in a different movie. Like, Costner's doing a total, like movie star thing and not even attempting the accent Morgan Freeman's like out in left field doing his own thing. And then Alec Rickman just comes in because the, the big Michael sp- Wincott. Oh yeah. Michael Wincott. Oh why my God. A, why a spoon cousin. Oh, but like Rickman is the one that you can clearly see knew what movie he was in. It's like, somebody has got to spice this shit up. Otherwise everybody's going to fall asleep. 
yeah, it's a it's a rough ride, man. Well, and even JFK, which I think is like a stone masterpiece, there are moments in Costner's acting where you're like, ooh, this movie might have outmatched you a bit. I mean, Untouchables, like he is completely overshadowed in scenes by Connery because Connery's so fucking good in that, and then. That end scene where, he, and obviously De Niro, where he confronts, he confronts like goes like, "Never stop." And he's like, "What you say?" He's like, "Never stop going after justice." I'm like, "You should just stop talking now, Kevin. Like, this is not working for you." Never stop fighting until the fight oh, is over. That's it. Yeah, yeah, it's real bad. It's like the somebody pointed this out to me, and it's ruined one moment of JFK for the rest of my life. Is it's super early in the film, like you know between five and the opening five and 10 minutes. Um, but it's when, uh, Jim Garrison sitting, you know, in his stately Southern Gothic mansion, reading the paper. And then he hears the president's been shot. And like stone does one of his like cocaine zooms in on him. And Costner's just like, Oh, Oh, Oh no, no. And it's just like, that's his reaction. This this guy became obsessed with the Kennedy assassination, but his first reaction is basically like, oh, shoot, this is bad. They're eating her, and then they're going to eat me. Oh, my God. <laughs> or like, what was, the, um, what was that Norman Mailer movie that he made with um, Wingshauser? Oh, shit. And tough guys don't dance. Oh fuck! Um, where it has Ryan O'Neill, and he has that one moment on the beach, which has become a straight up meme for people, where he's like, "Oh, oh, oh God. God, oh man, oh man, <laughs> oh no!" And you're just like, "What the fuck is this movie?" And like, have you ever seen Tough Guys Don't Dance? I have not. I've watched I have that. It. I've watched that scene. I have it on Blu-ray. We should watch it sometime <laughs> from that Vinegar Syndrome Blue that came out a little while ago. It is bizarre to say the <laughs> least like it's such a weird hot house melodrama about dudes being dudes you know uh, but like and at a time when they were like what if we tried to make wings hauser a thing and it's like well <laughs> all right i mean me personally you i be, love you be down yeah wings hauser all day every day but like the the mainstream they're like what's up with this guy's teeth man <laughs> he's kind of scary looking yeah <laughs> Is this the guy who played Ramrod in Vice Squad? I'm going to tell you, not buying any stock. Um, have you heard, you can totally cut this. Um, have, you, <laughs> have you heard the story uh, about Kevin Costner and Cal Ripken? No, wait, that he, he fucked his wife, right? Yeah. I think that's an urban legend. I just think it's so fascinating, though. that the, For the listeners, the story goes, up from, from what I've heard, down the grapevine, um, <laughs> Because it almost broke his his streak, his, his winning, his streak, Iron Man. Or no, his Iron Man streak. That's it. So yeah, so Ripken was in the '90s going for the Iron Man streak to beat Lou Gehrig uh, for most games played in a row without without missing one. And the story goes, he comes home from like an away game and finds Kevin Costner in bed with his wife, and they get in this big fucking fist fight, and Costner just beats the shit out of Cal Ripken and like gives him this like big black eye. And he looks really bad and to the point where he's not going to play that night. And so the story goes that the the Orioles like um, maintenance team shorted out their lights so they couldn't have a night game. So that Cal, oh, and he so wouldn't Cal break couldn't his break Iron his Iron Man, Man thing. Even if it's not true, what a story. 
how does something like that get made up? It's like the old, remember from the 80s, the old story about Rob Lowe used to jam. Oh, no, it was Richard Gere. But used to dribbles jam, up his dribbles ass. Dribbles up his own ass. <laughs> And people believed it. It it's just like, became a thing. Who's the first person? I just want to know who the first person in the bar after too many Bud Lights is basically like, yeah, no one heard about Richard Gere. Loves gerbils in his ass. No one heard about Cal Ripken Jr. Yeah, Kevin Costner fucked his wife. <laughs> it reminds me of the whole Tom Segura bit where he's like heard something from his dad and just told everyone he knew or he heard Tom Lee Jones was gay. And oh, he yeah. just told like everybody <laughs> He's like, his you know he's gay, like, right? <laughs> and I guess the last, I don't know if this is the last version of the baseball movie, but the, the one that I have on my list too, that I love, uh, and we'll be able to bring up one of your favorite ones is the, the, let's say the underdog slobs versus snobs or the system kind of story that is major league or the bad news bears. Yeah. Those are, if I had to choose my, my two kind of types of baseball movies, I like the most are the mythic one. It's like super romantic. And I like the complete debaucherous rated R, you know, just cussing asshole baseball movies. And so major league is my, one of my dad's favorites. And like, I remember he had surgery one time and I was like, what can I get you dad? He's like, just go rent me major league. It's like, all he wanted was like, was like Sherbet and major league. And he watched like over and over again, smart man. And, um, you have like movie star after movie star, like Behringer is on fire in this movie. He is like phenomenal and in a very similar role. I feel to, again, to um, Costner. Crash. Yeah, Crash he, Davis. Yeah, yeah. The, the idea of like the older guy coming in. I got a few years left in me. Um, Charlie Sheen is fu- his. He has the best delivery of the word fuck, I think, in the history of cinema. He puts on those pink glasses and he looks in the mirror. He goes, fuck. And it's just <laughs> every time I see it, I lose it. Wesley Snipes. Phenomenal. Willie Mays Hayes. Willie Mays Hayes. Um, oh, Dennis Haysbert. Okay, there's some stuff in this that does not age well. Um, Joe Boo. Yeah, that's that's a rough a rough sit. Um, Still funny as shit it's though. Re- and it's got and you got the um, that actor. I always forget his name. The asshole who's from like Hoosiers. Um, yeah, I can. The, I was just thinking of his face. The too. worst teeth in the history. He just looks like the ugliest man. You yeah, know? he's he, like an uglier version of Billy Devane. He kind of looks like Billy v- Devane's like West Virginia cousin, or like a less charming Steve Buscemi. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and you have Corbin Burnson too. He's he's good in this. He's really, really good in it, but he's also just such a piece of shit. And honestly, Bob Uecker is he's as the great. announcer, you know, doing the thing. Frankly, they did in real life too. But yeah. like, and that one show he was on too. Yeah, yeah, he's so fucking funny in this. Yeah, the whole and it's kind of like it has the. It's it's just slap shot with baseball, you know. It's that yeah, it's that same idea of like we're gonna lose on purpose, or even Ted Lasso takes that plot device, right? Of like the first season of oh like, yeah, I want to lose on purpose to like either get revenge or make more money. You know, there's always oh that. Ted Lasso season one is just major league with, yeah. with soccer. It's the it's the, yeah exactly, and it's like oh I have no expectation of winning. I actually want you to lose the better. Yeah, you know, and I it, but very much um, again with a female owner too, who's and basically t- completely you know acting as the puppeteer behind the scenes. And again, Slapshot, same thing, female owner. That right. scene where like Paul Newman goes in, he's like, you know, cussing her out for like just basically wanting the team to fail. And so you have um, that similar kind of plot device. Uh, but it's 
it's kind of also a hangout movie where they're like, they're just not really doing a lot. And it's like, all right, hey, let's, they start winning and they just start winning because they start believing in themselves. It's sort of like Animal House, but done as a baseball movie to yeah. a certain degree. It's kind of aimless at times. And it, I mean, and Bad News Bears as like a great, as you said, a great kind of companion piece. That's, I mean, that's way up there. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I watched that. It's always on Delta's um, like uh, movie screening thing and on the plane. So I literally watch it pretty much one of every other flight. I probably watch Bad News Bears and Mathau has never been. I mean, he's so fucking funny in this and the kids. Another movie that could not be made today. I did not like the remake, uh, the Linklater one. Uh, I like, there's, there's moments I like. Billy Bob's pretty good in it, but he's just doing the bad Santa routine all over again. Oh, totally. Just the cigarette hanging out of the mouth, the big piece of shit. Um, Drunk. Absolutely. Interacting with children inappropriately. Yeah. Um, but I, I love Bad News Bears. I actually like the whole series. I haven't watched the others in a long time. Um, Have you ever watched the Keanu Reeves movie Hardball? I actually never seen that. It's not good. Okay. I have some friends. I was saying we're going to do this. Like, oh, Hardball's my favorite. I'm like, really? Yeah. No, people ride hard for that movie. Yeah. And I struggle because I remember seeing it in the theaters and being like, "Mm," because that's also like the Keanu and the wilderness period, like right before or maybe right after Matrix. I can't remember. Yeah. It was like 2001 or something. And it's like, yeah, because it's during the time when he's like kind of becoming another I don't want to say Costner in a weird way, but he is becoming this weird like sports actor between that. The replacements is oh, another really and, good and, one. And a lot of ro- and romantic shit like the lake house, lake house, but yeah. also point break, frankly, is like hinging on him being, you know, Johnny Utah who goes undercover as, as a surfer. So like Keanu's like, I think, especially after the John Wick movies, like one of our great athletes as a as a movie star, because like he so physically commits to like putting himself into the role and making sure that we know that he's physically doing everything. Yeah, like it's pretty fucking cool. Oh, I mean, it's the best. Want to get to questions? Let's do it. All right. We're back with questions about Moneyball. Martin, I'm going to throw one out there that we don't usually do. We're, we're still going to do double feature and remake and face melter. Cool. And, but I think Moneyball is distinctly a dividing line in Jonah Hill's career. Yeah. And I was going to ask you, do you prefer pre-Moneyball funny, goofy, not self-serious Jonah Hill? Or do you prefer the Jonah Hill that came after? Because he's nominated for an Academy Award for this movie, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Do you enjoy respectable Jonah Hill more? Be- so this is not, Moneyball is not included in pre. So it's, we're talking about before goofy yeah, we'll use this as basically like the pivot point in his career. Okay. It's like pre-Moneyball and post-Moneyball because super bad's before this too. Oh, yeah. I'm probably going to say before. Um, I 
I, I think he's great. I mean, I think he's like stuff he did after is great, specifically like Wolf of Wall Street and Moneyball, I think are the two that stand out the most. Oh my God, yeah. Like, and I, it's funny, they're, they're really similar kind of like these businessy guys, but couldn't be more different in terms of like tone and like performance. Like one is so subdued, one is like completely just cracked out and they're both really great in their own ways. Um, I think, I'm, I was working on this new script and like Superbad is one of the greatest just like teen comedies it will never yeah. be usurped. And a big part of that is Jonah Hill. I mean, like he said originally, obviously, you know, Rogan wanted, he and Evan wanted to be in it themselves or like it was written based on themselves. Like I like Jonah Hill a whole lot more than Rogan. Like I like think he feels like kind of similar. Really? I do. Yeah. Um, and I think early, early, even shitty stuff, like, um, accepted with like Justin Long, like okay. First of all, accepted is not shitty. That movie <laughs> fucking rules. But he's really funny in that. Regard regardless of our disagree, he's on great. That, in it. He's yeah. he's amazing in that. Or like I remember, you know, he stood out so much when I first saw uh, uh, Forty Year Old Virgin with my dad. I'm like, who is that kid? His one scene in the eBay store with yeah, with the uh, the fucking platform shoes, the disco disco boots. I'm like, he's so fucking good. Um, what about you? So weird in it. So weird. But for me, super bad. Like honestly, I would take super bad over every that one movie alone over everything after 2011. I am see. I'm mixed because my I don't favorite like where he is Hill performances are the Moneyball and everything after. Even though I love Super Bad, I love all the stuff we're talking about. Forty year old version accepted. Yada yada. I like self serious Jonah Hill. To a certain degree, um, he's apparently a notorious prick, like in interviews and everything. I interviewed him. He was the coolest interview I ever did. Yeah. And he's, but, he's, yeah. he's, I've always heard he's very, very tough on interviewers um, and kind of condescending, but whatever. That's neither here nor there. Now, Wolf of Wall Street and him in it in particular is one of the great, like, comedic performances of all time. Oh, yeah. Fucking Donnie Don. <laughs> Donnie Donowitz and his fucking phosphorescent teeth and saying, talking about how he wants to fuck his cousin and like just how fucked up Jonah Hill gets in it. Like him and Leo in that movie are so fucking good. Together. Oh, their, their camaraderie and they're just, they're, they're, their, their chemistry is amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Wolf of Wall Street, I also would pick as possibly the best movie of like the last 10 years. It's great. Like um, it's, it's just. Like pure Scorsese cocaine cinema, you know, from a guy who does is again completely sober and is making a movie though that's like faster paced and more intense than you know people 30, 40 years like younger than he is. Like it's that movie's so good and Hill's a big part of it. Um, I love him. Ten in, years old. Uh, it's while I saw it while I was living in Austin. Twenty thirteen. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another one I really, really like of his that's right around the same time as Moneyball is I think he's great parodying himself and this is the end. He's, he's pretty fucking dude, funny. That movie is so fucking hilarious, dude. Yeah. That is, and it's one of my favorite Danny McBride parts, too. And it's he's, also him like talking. Well, Danny McBride's entrance in that it, movie is so fucking great. It's gold. But he's also it. He is sort of because that's after the Moneyball Academy Award nomination, because that's part of his like characters that now he's like 
becoming the more respectable dude of the group. Yeah, he has the earring, I think. That, exactly. The whole yeah. joke, yeah. They're really, like, leaning into, ooh, Jonah's a serious actor now. Yeah. Oh, man. What? I just, I'm not sure. We both watched, um, was it You People? Yeah. Together. And not I don't, good. I just don't know what he's doing now. I don't know what's going on with I, him. And we just, even his look, I'm like. He, he looks like hammered shit. He just looks real bad. And that's like. Yeah, I did not like that movie, and so it's like I think it's hard for me to like. I don't know where he's gone, but he had that five year period where he was just like, and I really like mid nineties a lot as a as a as a film. His weird um, Larry Clark imitation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a lot definitely pastiche, but that's where I'll stand on before. Okay. Yeah. So double feature. Double feature. Um, I'm gonna go Moneyball and The Insider. Um, Ooh, yeah. interesting pick. Both, I think, are... What I like about The Insider, the same way I like Moneyball, is it takes what could be a dry subject and makes it, like, feel like life or death. You know, that I think that Bennett Miller, like, raises... While it is about numbers, he, again, finds that very strong, like, do-or-die, like, um, underdog story within it. Mm -hmm. Um, And the insider feels that same way, another guy going against a system, right, who believes, two guys, right, who find each other, like in Moneyball. Yeah. These these brothers almost of, like, hey, we're alone against the world. Like, it's just us. Like, no one, everyone else will betray us. We have to, like, be able to stand up and say this is the right thing to do. Now, one, it's more about public health, and one is more, you know, about, like, I want. I believe that we can change the game and be winners. So it definitely has a different kind of end goal. But I think they're very similar in the way that they could have been very boring on paper, and with two great filmmakers and two great scripts, were kind of lifted up to something special. I just love, obviously, man. Again, I love the insider. Sure. I would go with Moneyball and Steve Jobs. Oh, that's yeah, like cool. a Sorkin yeah. double feature about disruptors. I feel like Steve Jobs is possibly the most undervalued Sorkin production because I love that script. Um, I love Fassbender as Steve Jobs in it. Like he's so fucking good and intense. I love Jeff Daniels, like their whole relationship together. I love, uh, you know, Seth Rogen and it. It's, it's just such like, it feels like a play at certain points with the way he structures it with the four, like big launch events and we're just behind the scenes and doing everything. But that's also what reminds me of Moneyball the most is that like he loves writing all of this behind the scene trauma from like the West wing and the American president to like, uh, what is that studio 60 on the sunset strip? You know, his SNL has failed SNL kind of behind the scenes series. Um, Steve jobs, Social network is even sports night, yeah. sports night. Oh yeah. I forgot. I mean, that's about that's sports a definite. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, it's just all, it's all of a piece with him. And I just feel like jobs is one of the ones that because you had, it came out at a weird time. Um, I don't think anybody was really into the subject matter. They yeah. kind of positioned it as like an awards movie and it just didn't really catch on. Um, Danny Boyle is strangely subdued with his filmmaking style in that one. Like there is some crazy shit that he decides to do like that huge fight between Fassbender and Jeff Daniels in the hallway where then all of a sudden like Danny Boyle's projecting like rockets taking off and shit on the walls. And you're like, what is going on? (laughs) But it's the, the movie is pure Sorkin. It's just his dialogue, like going at it and dudes, 
again, very proficient disruptor types going at each other's throats in the pursuit of like changing, you know, one aspect of our lives. And I just, I love that movie so much. Fuck yeah. So remake. This one's tricky because A, we have all the Soderbergh's backstory. And then you have High Flying Bird, which is kind of like Soderbergh taking a second crack and giving us an idea of what his version would look like. But I'd be interested in what you think about a Moneyball series or like a Moneyball remake. I don't think you could remake it as a film. No, I mean, it it would be a great prestige like HBO series, I think. Um, And it's been long enough. It's like 12 years old that I think you could and just go and go deeper on the, the kind of the whole season. You could start earlier, you know, um, like the year before with them losing and like Billy kind of finding, you know, through Pete's this kind of new way of, of organizing the team and of, uh, of scouting. Um, I'm not like, I'm not like chomping to bit to see that, you know what I mean? I just like the movie as it is and it's kind of perfect. Um, well, and you, we kind of had that in the form of Winning Time, the L.A. Right, Lakers yeah. series, which isn't—it's not Moneyball, but it has the same behind-the-scenes kind of feel of, and again about a guy who's being a disruptor in his day and age, and like changing the way the game is perceived and, yeah. and broadcast and and presented and everything. Um, yet, I would watch it, and I think I'm actually sort of surprised that Moneyball hasn't become a series mm-hmm. sort of in the same way that Friday Night Lights became a series. Oh, yeah. Because that's the other way I could see that playing out is almost being like a traditional NBC-style drama about, like, just apply the same basically, like, you know, uh, trappings and stuff to a different team and see how it works and, like, a different manager basically trying – to reinvent like the game and stuff and then oh, spinning it off oh, into yeah. like a bunch of mini dramas and everything. Like it's how Friday night lights is technically about, you know, uh, Texas high school football still, but like coach Taylor is a far cry away from Billy Bob Thornton in, in the Peter Berg movie. Oh, I like that idea. Or just like, yeah, almost like the way the Fargo series is to like right. the no, movie. It's or exact, it's, same exact application yeah. of like adaptation. I love that. So the themes and like ideas and style and storytelling, but with a new with new characters and new direct, yeah, like bring great yeah. filmmakers in to do it, do a different style and everything. And it's, it's really cool. The other one that uh, I saw today, which is a great companion to Moneyball is, have you seen Ben Affleck's air? Not yet. yet? No, the, the movie about, the, the marketing guys at Nike and how they recruit Michael Jordan to, to basically do the first Air Jordan sneaker that revolutionizes sneaker wear and Nike and makes it part of the, the kind of American lexicon of sports and everything. Very similar to Moneyball. A lot yeah. of very writerly, a lot of dudes talking in offices about strategy, very little sports. Because that's the other thing that we we actually haven't really talked about with Moneyball that much is that there's not that much baseball in it until the back third. Well, it's I mean, it's so it's kind of it's written in a way to almost make the film cheaper. Yeah. Where it's like Pitt, his character doesn't watch the games. Right. So right. He, he, it's all about, we're with him hearing it and they're showing the real footage of the games. There's very little, like you said, on like on the actual mound stuff with the characters. Right. Or they do that really cool artistic thing where everything else is blacked out. And, There's and, even less in air. Wow. Like air is all archival footage of Jordan and mm. everything. 
Yeah. Also, another film that kind of like dances in that is like Jerry Maguire. These kind of people who are around sure. sports, you know, and like. Oh, and Air does a lot with that too because Chris Messina plays. Oh, cool. Jordan's him. agent, and he plays him kind of like. Um, the Ari Gould of like the sports world. Just nice. he, he threatens to eat Matt Damon's ball sack at one point, And it's pretty <laughs> fucking hilarious. Um, but no, yeah, it's, it's really good. It's really worth it. Despite kind of positioning corporate executives and ad dudes as like your big heroes of the Michael Jordan story. Like it's, it's kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, we were talking I think off mic, but like the flaming hot Cheetos movie, we have Tetris, all these like corporations, these like consumer products that are now like, that's the, it's like, congratulations. Here's how your favorite snack was made. And I, flaming Cheetos does sound interesting, that backstory, but it's also like still going to celebrate and sell the product, you know? Yeah. Corporate America is great. You know? It's weird because you can sort of feel Affleck with air, not to get on too hard of a tangent, but you can kind of feel Affleck with air starting to explore the idea of like when brands became a huge part of our life, when people became brands, yeah. you know, when you had, you know, guys like Michael Jordan stepping into these sneakers, because that's the big thing that they use to sell his mom on it. Um, to where they're like, it's not about the sneaker. It's about when he steps into the sneaker, what it is. And it's like, okay, that's interesting. But he just turns it into kind of like with Moneyball to where like you have this you know, movie about Bill James and economics and everything and how it was a threat to the game. And, and you know, Jonah Hill is Peter Brand coming in and, and applying that mathematics to the sport and the, the push-pull between the, the – mythic nature of baseball and the mathematical nature of baseball like with air it's very much like about how you know these guys come in and are like we need to save this company how do we use you know the 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 one of the next big players like of our time to basically come in and save nike um and then it transitions into a full-on like inspirational story about you know matt damon as sonny vaccaro coming in and literally delivering this like heartfelt speech to michael jordan who's off camera pretty much the entire movie he's they treat him as basically this like mythical being um but delivering this idea of like and this heartfelt like war speech basically being like if we do this this will not only change the game it'll allow you to change people's lives and like the way that they consume and everything it's interesting it's just you can feel Affleck exploring and then giving in to basically what a traditional narrative would want. Yeah. Us, like Moneyball does. So face melter. Yay. Nay, nay. Tough to say. Nay, nay. I mean, tough to say. I mean, like I love this movie, but like, I, I don't see it. I think there are certain people in my life who haven't seen it. If I should be like, wow, this is great, you know, but it's not crazy enough. You know, to like reach the face melter status, other films we've talked about. No, it um, it's just really fucking good. Yeah, it's just really solid. It's really good. Um, the ensemble is incredible. Like how it's put together. Also, we haven't even mentioned Chris Pratt yet, who's like before he's annoying. Before he was, <laughs> yeah, before he was annoying. I mean, <laughs> but I mean, he's, he's really good he's in this movie. Great. The, the scene where he gets he gets um, scouted is amazing. Yeah, like it's so heartfelt and so his his awkwardness and the whole like we're gonna have you play first. Tell him 
That's not hard, right? It's, it's incredibly, incredibly hard. <laughs> <laughs> but nothing worth nothing worth doing was ever easy. Yes. <laughs> That's another like primo Sorkin scene of like these dudes just showing up at this guy's like doorstep. Which didn't happen in real life, through. guaranteed. No, you know, but it's yeah. Well, Martin, this has been great. Yeah, thanks for doing the baseball stuff with me. Heck yeah. And uh we'll have to see you guys next time for more secret handshake. Until then. Enjoy all your spring fever. <laughs>